Hello, welcome to what is now the second Transatlantic Tea Times, where I'm joined by my colleagues, Dan Ruprecht and Tim LaTulip. Um, I'm in my, um, we'll just call it secure, unfinished basement location. Uh, clearly, gents, the two of you are not. So first question to Dan Ruprecht, uh, is that your castle or are you at the Abbey? Where exactly are you right now? Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of secure locations, that's exactly where I'm at. This is uh, one of uh, William the Conqueror's keeps. Uh, so I, I live in Guildford, which is about 35, 40 minutes um, southwest of London. Uh, and the town originated as a sort of a gold, uh, a, a gold producing area for, for the, the royalty and, and basically was uh, a place where they, where they made coins uh, again, which is why it's called Guildford. Uh, and when William the Conqueror uh, sort of conquered the island, uh, he set up strategic keeps all along the southern border of uh, of England, and uh, behind me is is one of those keeps. And uh, I think it was built. So it, it, you're talking around uh, 1046 around that time. So we're looking at a, a castle that's about a thousand years old. Um, and then also of note, this is also uh, what inspired um, Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland. So he lived actually. If I flip the camera. Uh, or if I turn around just this other way, he lived just over on this side. Uh, so when he was uh, writing Alice in Wonderland and, and uh, through the looking glass, he was walking through through this park, uh, and a lot of it inspired, you know, the little the bowling green, you know, right there. All of that is from from the book. So uh, my daughter, whose name is Alice, thinks this is her castle, um, but it's mine. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. I love it. Now, Tim, where where are you? I can't, I can't even guess where you are right now. Oh, it'll become apparent to you in a moment. I'm um I'm, I'm based in the city of London, as as you know, and um it's uh it's equally steeped in in history. And because I didn't grow up here, I'm actually more likely to know about this stuff than the locals are, because you tend to learn things about it. If you if you come later in life, but the the thing behind me is actually a, a, a tribute to uh, the late Prince Albert. Uh, he of course um, is popular for a lot of reasons, but one of the lesser known things is that he was pretty much coined uh, or, or uh, attributed to popularizing of Christmas trees in the window uh, in in the Christian world. So that that kind of started in Germany or or in the Nordics, bringing a tree inside the house. Uh, and the royal family is actually German, so so it makes a lot of sense why that made its way over here. Uh, but America couldn't wait to put Christmas trees in the window uh, about 80 or 100 years after separating from the English in a bad divorce that, that you might remember. <laughs> uh, across, across from me, about 20 meters, is um, the Royal Albert Hall, and this is about 150 oh. years old. Um, I've been to many concerts and galas there. I used to live down the road slightly, and uh, it's it's been it, it's hosted you know bands like you know members of Pink Floyd, uh, the, the Austrian the Austrian Orchestra, all, all kinds of amazing groups play here. Uh, and you know with COVID, it's been it's been shut. It looks a little sad right now, but in the next couple of months, I think she'll she'll be back open. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Well, you know maybe on one of these recordings, I'll show the wonderful. Um, sites of New Jersey to to the uh, to the viewers. But uh, a great description, by the way, Tim, for those who are perhaps listening to this as a podcast versus watching our, our video. Uh, for those on video, um, 
I'm not wearing some of my normal IDS gear. Um, some of you may notice that I'm actually wearing a Stoke City uh, jersey. I felt like it was appropriate, guys, that in light of the launch of the Super League and then the 48-hour later demise of the Super League, that I wear the only football jersey that I that I have. And, and frankly, it's the only one I'll continue to wear until one of you sends me another jersey. I'll root for any team. Um, the, of course, disappointment for me is the one jersey that I own is for the team that was not invited. I heard they were on the cusp of being invited to the Super League. It was, it was going to be, uh, you know, Man City or Stoke. And they went Man City, so I. It was close. Who, who, did you, who did you hear that from? The other, the other three fans with the same shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was going to say who was the. <laughs> I was going to say the sad thing is I don't know one player on Stoke City, and and if I didn't share this on the other podcast, um, the the jersey actually my my mom is English and she grew up in Barrow and Furness before she moved to the states uh, when she was eighteen. She went back for a visit, and I think that perhaps as she was leaving, she realized she should get a gift for her, for her kids, and uh, so she uh, got two jer- three jerseys. Um, one was a Wolver- uh, Wolverhampton, a Wolves jersey. One was a Scottish team jersey, and then she grabbed this one. And because of the red and white, she thought that it was a uh, Team England jersey. And so for years, I didn't wear it, but I said, I've got an England jersey until I wore it with some colleagues who were from England. And they said, that's not the country kit you're wearing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Dan Dan might know this. Um, I might be off by a day or two, but I think it's St. George's Day in England. Is it it not? It's it's today or... uh, It's not a public holiday anymore, but but St. George's is the... It is a it's a major day in, in in UK history or for English history, and that's um that's where you see the traditional English cross, the the white flag with the the red cross. Uh, so I thought maybe you were wearing it to pay homage to to Saint George. To Saint George, you know, uh, that might be that might be better. Maybe I should go with that <laughs> uh, instead of saying that I'm wearing the Stoke Stoke jersey. But uh, good to know. Look at that. You know, useful information. You're sharing information about landmarks and significant dates. Uh, over there. Um, yeah. You know, I was, I was, I was curious, you know, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking to you guys about how you ended up in the particular fields that you focus on. And, and so for, uh, for Dan really, you know, what brought you to going to law school and then from, from law school, what got you into the world of consulting and doing what you do today? Yeah, uh, good question, because, I mean, as, as everyone knows, in terms of uh, sort of e-discovery and uh, data interrogation, no one, at least, you know, 15, 20 years ago in, in sort of the, the law school realm, uh, no one really went to law school for that. We, many of us who, who practice and, and are consultants and advise uh, uh, on these types of matters sort of found our ways into these career paths uh, through alternate routes. Um, and, and mine was no different. I, I actually went to law school for environmental law, a different E, uh, law practice, environmental law practice. Um, and I graduated 2002. So if you do your, 
your math, we'll use numbers again, that puts you square uh, in the election of Bush v. Gore. Um, and I remember actually as a student uh, staying up all night during that election because you had Gore, who is arguably the strongest proponent for environmental management and regulation versus Bush, uh, who, you know, obviously had strong ties with the oil industry and Halliburton and, and, and all the rest. Um, without getting, you know, too much into, into history and politics, um, we all know how, how that uh, hashed out and, and an environmental law took a hit, uh, you, you know, afterwards. I, I practiced for a couple of years with a, with a small boutique firm in um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, but based on the, the work that was coming out, these boutique firms couldn't uh, maintain the, the practice as they once were able to because uh, EPA was no longer enforcing the regulations uh, to the degree that they had been. Um, so a lot of the partners moved on to larger firms and, and I sort of uh, started reevaluating where I wanted to go. And at that stage, I was thinking government. So I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, and started um, applying to, you know, EPA and, and sort of government regulatory agencies, um, again, who were on uh, hiring freezes at the time. Um, and it was at that point that um, I met some individuals at, at a law firm, Cleary Gottlieb, um, started working very closely with them on their uh, discovery matters and using uh, electronic um, uh, technologies and tools to get through the, the large volumes on, on their big matters and found I had a, not just a, an aptitude towards it, but a, but a real interest in it. It, it really was something that I went headfirst into really. Uh, I, I think the types of matters that we were involved in, these large scale uh, investigations and, and, and large scale mergers really required you to learn a lot about various industries very quickly and become experts very quickly while utilizing tools to get to the information that we needed to, to build our arguments and disclose to, to the various regulators. Um, so really it came from that. And, and as I started growing within the firm and, and really starting to, to, to help lead certain areas of it, uh, I moved to Brussels and, and a, a, as I mentioned on the last call, uh, or on the last talk, um, helped uh, sort of build out that team and work with um, the, the head of eDiscovery over there to, to really harness technologies in new and creative ways. Um, my, my trajectory has, has constantly build the, been on this sort of building block momentum of how is technology and the law uh, sort of crossing paths, where are those intersections and, and what advantages can we get from, from these various tools that, that we operate with on a, uh, on a daily basis. Um, so even though I went to school for environmental law, uh, I think I still kept the E in there somewhere and I'm very happy that, that, that I've done. It's, it's allowed me to travel the world. Uh, I now live in England, close to family where, where my mother grew up and, and I have cousins and, and aunts and uncles everywhere. So it's it's been uh, a strange uh, road, but one that, that I wouldn't change for the world. Rumor has it that you wanted to get into e-discovery so that you didn't have to change that giant tattoo that you have, which on our, e third, on, my yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On, on our third, on our third transatlantic tea time, maybe we'll have you bust that one out. So, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, which, uh, you know, Tim, before we switch to you and how you decided to get into this field, I know you actually have a tattoo, correct? Yeah, 
Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll admit to the one, I guess. Yeah, I actually have five. Yeah, let's admit yeah. to the. Let's well. Let, let's so. All right. So so, I won't ask you about the five, but but um, for those who who uh, for those of us who've seen Tim um in short sleeves or even a sleeve pulled up, there is one on his uh, on his forearm that maybe we'll get a story about. But um. Like I said, we won't make you talk about your tattoos until we make Roop show his giant e tattoo. Um, Tim, how how did you get into into this field? Yeah, good question. I it's a question that I haven't been asked in a long time, and it's one that I used to avoid, and now I enjoy it. Because um, when I started getting into this, it was very much from an electronic investigation perspective. I'm not, I'm not a qualified lawyer like, like Dan, I don't have, you know, 15 years of, of legal training and experience. I sort of come out from a more um, technology driven approach. So it, and it's, it kind of, it, it kind of helps paint the picture why Dan and I work together. So, well, his, his background is very um, legal driven and he, he has a mastery and an understanding of law. Uh, and I, I really, bake myself in technology, uh, in the inner workings of technology. And I sort of learn about law in consulting engagements and kind of through osmosis. I've, ne I've never been to law school, but it, but it interests me. So it's, it's a good field to be in. I started doing this um, it, with one of the first digital forensics um, curriculum, uh, first educational programs in the country in Vermont, where I grew up. Data forensics at that time was really stuck in local law enforcement and to some extent at the FBI level, the, the RCFL, the Regional Computer Forensic Labs, they were using software and certain techniques to make sure um, child abusers and, and you know dangerous criminals were being brought to justice and uh, electronic evidence was being considered. It was really kind of nascent in, in the e-discovery phase. Most of e-discovery at that time was, as you guys know well, was just scanning bankers' boxes full of paper and making sure they were searchable so i was kind of on the cutting the the, the early edge of this and i i was lucky to work with a lot of people who had doing it for a long time gary kessler if he ever watches this a major major fan he was a thesis advisor of mine he's worked in data forensics forever warren cruz uh family friend long time inter friend um you know people like uh, anton litchfield people that i that i adore and, and learned a lot from uh over the years they all had prior experience in that law enforcement space. And I, I did that as well to some extent. I um, Coming out of university, I was interviewed and flown down to Fort Meade by the National Security Agency, um, several different intelligence community kind of opportunities. The war on terror was very, very hot and heavy at that time. We had just gone into Afghanistan, um, United States. So there was definitely an interest in altruism and, and learning from that perspective, but ultimately I was uh, eventually lured away by sunshine uh, out in Phoenix. And I, I worked for any recovery provider out there. Um, eventually I moved to California and I stayed, I had a heavy focus on, on computer and digital forensics. I worked for a small firm supporting the US Attorney's Office in California, working with the, the, the Department of Defense in, in uh, Pendleton, um, NCIS up there. Uh, on, on the Navy base and um, really got a lot of courtroom and testifying experience earlier in my career than I probably should have. 
to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I got thrown into a hot seat pretty, pretty damn quick. Uh, but it's one of those things where you kind of need credit to get credit, uh, in those credit card scenarios. And honestly, I don't think there's ever too soon. I mean, if you're in it two years, maybe it's too soon, but I know guys that have been doing this for 15, 20 years and they never get called to testify. Um, so it's good to, it's kind of, it's, it's good to take that challenge if it comes your way. But, um, after that, I continued to work for consulting, supporting cross-border litigation, responding to regulatory requests, uh, up in San Francisco. And then, you know, many years ago, I came to London to build out the European practice of, of an American company. Uh, my wife's born and raised in Paris, so it made a lot of sense for us to be next to Paris. Um, the ultimatum was to, to come here anyway at some point, too tired of living back over that way. So it was really a good uh, it was really a good chance to expand my career, work with different legal systems. Uh, it's very different in Europe. On the continent in particular, they don't have massive discovery and disclosure regimes. They don't sort of frivolously sue each other left and right. Uh, so, so the cases we work on tend to be uh, bigger ticket investigations, but less frequent. And uh, it, it's the kind of work that I, I, I really enjoy. Um, I guess I'm jumping around a bit, but my, my interest in this actually, I, I, I sort of forgot to mention, my, my interest in this started probably in the 90s when I was asked by somebody, a family friend, to look into something on a computer for some somebody, I won't expose any details. I'm as I say it out loud. I want to be, you know, sensible. But they, they wanted me to look into something on a computer, and I was, you know, using my my teenage hacking years to kind of uh, figure out what had happened on that computer. And then I realized there might be there there might be a career opportunity in this. Uh, so in between landscaping and all the outdoor work I was doing, I, I focused on, you know, reverse engineering computers, finding out what information's left behind. And I've never really stopped doing that. I've done it in different countries and with different people. Uh, but now I'm, I'm fine. We're, you know, we're finally on the right team and I'm on the right place where hopefully we do it for the next 20 years. <laughs> yeah. No, really interesting. And, and glad you guys both shared those two different paths. Uh, and, and I agree. I think that uh, it allows you guys to uh, complement each other with your separate strengths. Uh, it's why uh, I know at least for, for European clients, uh, they get to see both of you usually in a meeting or a presentation. So that leads to the next question, which is, which of you is Batman and which one is Robin? Or are we talking a different dynamic duo when you guys uh, approach well, these things? Well, I don't know. I, yeah, I'll let Dan take that one. Dan's kids think he's Batman. So maybe we can go with that. My, my daughter uh, actually does think I'm Batman. That is true. Um, there you go. What there, I would say is that I would... I would say it depends on it depends on the topic. I mean, there are certain areas that 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 Tim has a, a very specific expertise that I just simply uh, can't match or shouldn't be speaking about if he's in the same room. Uh, and then vice versa. We we as you just mentioned, we've we've come to this from very different perspectives perspectives and, and very different career paths, um, and that exposed us to uh, a myriad of of different opportunities and and. Uh, and, and subject matters. Um, so in terms of, of how we lead, I mean, one of the great uh, reasons why we partner so well together is that, that we do know when and where to step forward or step back. Um, we, we, we don't play an ego game. We're, we're very much a team. Uh, we see that our value comes in 
making sure that the end client understands, you know, what opportunities or advantages are out there through technology and how that's delivered. It doesn't matter who delivers it. It's, it's who delivers it best. Ah, see, I was going to give Tim the, the out of being able to say, I think I'm more like Alfred, because frankly, <laughs> based on what I know about the two of you, I would trust something that Tim has constructed out of nothing versus you, Dan. I'm afraid that if you did it, there'd be some extra screws lying around and uh, maybe a base hey, hey, here or there. Hey, look, you got to remember the last name is Ruprecht, which is very German. So it's, so what I do know how to do is is follow instructions really well and, and put things together in, in perfect unison. So don't, don't, yeah, uh, I agree with don't Dan. think about I, the cultural history. <laughs> you might've gotten that backwards. I'm, I'm good at taking things apart, not so much building them. Ask my wife, I built a baby crib. It took like five beers in six hours for me to do it. <laughs> All right. So what we'll do is I'll just make sure that if we edit this out, we'll, 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 that question will go out and I'll let Dan be our Alfred. Um, let me ask this, th what may be our last question, uh, because, you know, I can't wait till our third and then we've been going a little while here. Uh, but you both have mentioned you've lived in different places throughout all the years. And, and I've moved from the East Coast to New Mexico, so the southeast US, uh, Southwest US, to California, and then back to the East Coast for law school where I settled down. You guys have been to some much more um, exotic locations perhaps, but of all the places that you've lived, I, I'm just curious, what's been your favorite and why? Um, I, I guess I can go first. I mean, in terms of the best fit at the right time, uh, I, I mean, it sounds a bit cheesy, but right now is perfect spot. Uh, you know, raising a family just out of outside of a, a, a city like London, but have the green space and you know my own castle, all of that. It, it, it's just, it is a perfect environment um, for for bringing up a family. Uh, you know, starting a career, building a career, all of it. It, it, it ticks all the boxes. Um, but that said, if, if I talk about adventure and, and, and cultural experience and being out of my comfort zone, Brussels, I mean, that will always have a, spot, a soft spot in my, in my heart. Center of Europe, uh, doorstep to virtually everywhere. I was in a different country almost every, every week, uh, you know, as a tourist and, and also being close to family in Germany. Um, it's, it's five years of my life that I'm sure uh, when I'm old and gray and looking back, that, that five-year period is going to have a, a, a special place. So I love where I'm at, but, but that definitely has a, a soft spot. Nice. Tim, what about you? Yeah, good answers, then. Um, yeah, equally, I, the, the best place for me is, is London. Um, unsurprisingly, I would have moved after all these years if, if that weren't the case. But, I mean, it, spring here is brilliant. Let me look at it. Uh, but... I guess, yeah, I, I guess um, it, this is the place where I've had the most, probably the most adventure in my life, apart from, you know, some data collection stuff years ago when I was single, flying around the world. But uh, my, my baby was born here. Um, my wife and I have had friends from all over the world stay with us here. We've done some pretty incredible things here. This is probably the number one city in the world for just about everything. Um, you know, that that, that might, you know, the rankings might say Tokyo one year, or Paris some other year, but I think, I think London's top. And um, uh, apart from that, I, you know, being in Paris is, is always, is always amazing. I always uh, have very emotional memories about spending boatloads of time in Paris. Um, 
we, we more or less take up residence there in, in normal times. And that's, that's being out of your comfort zone. Like Dan said, uh, it's, it's definitely, definitely, um, a lot different than, than what I'm used to in England or America. And, uh, they, they certainly know how to enjoy life quite a bit better than, than the rest of us. Uh, and then I guess, I guess tied for third or in third place would be San Francisco. M my wife and I weren't, we didn't have the baby yet. Um, you know, we were, we both had extra time in the evenings. You know, there's boatloads of great restaurants and, and food in, in San Francisco. So, uh, yeah, probably, probably those three. Uh, but, but London is, is, is the one I rate the, the best. Cool. Well, and, and I like the, the little stories tied to each or why they're special. So appreciate you guys sharing that. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say you guys look good with those haircuts. It's been a while since, uh, since it the, since we saw you groomed like that so uh very very nice um i want to thank uh dan ruprecht and tim latulip for joining me in our transatlantic tea time uh if you are interested in hearing more conversations with the three of us please uh go to um our youtube channel to watch the video that's ids talks all caps um, or you go to your uh, where you get your podcasts, and uh, we're also there as IDS Talk. So we'd love to have you subscribe, and look forward to all of you join us uh, joining us next time. So again, guys, thanks a lot. The weather looks great. I'm super jealous. Um, I'm looking forward to when we do one of these, and I get to enjoy the blue skies with you. So cheers. Cheers.